0: Good morning. good morning. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to spend the fall in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. So we're going to make lots of progress. Matthew 5 for the whole fall. We'll be in Matthew 5, 1 to 3 this morning. Let's pray. Father God, how good it is to be in your presence. To gather together as believers, you tell us where two or three are gathered, you are here in our midst, and we claim that promise. Father, how good it is to look at your inspired and errant word, in this case, to look at what is rather familiar, the Beatitudes of Matthew. We ask, Father, that as we look at them, we would both be encouraged by the familiar and challenged by it, as well as see new things not for head knowledge, because we want to be transformed. We ask, Father, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but truly doers as well. God, our time we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. His name was Levi. Levi is a Hebrew word that means joined in harmony. I suppose if you're a Levi here today, you're probably a very harmonious individual. But this Levi, not so much. This is the guy mothers warned their daughters about. This is the guy dogs snarled at. If he came up the walkway to your house and your dog bit him, give the dog a bone. Pet him. Say, well done, Fido. You dislike this particular Levi. He's the scum of the earth. He's trash. He's worse than that. When the men would go to the gates of Capernaum, they would gather to gossip and talk and to run government. When he came by, there weren't enough bars of ivory soap to clean the mouths of these men and the words that they would utter. I can only imagine how many men gathered together threw their shekels on the ground and said, let's see if we have enough to hire an assassin. They wouldn't say bring him back dead or alive. The last two words would be unnecessary. There was a target on his back. If he were brought back dead, only one person would attend his service, his mother. There wouldn't be tears flowing in the streets, there would be wine. People would be rejoicing. And again, if he would walk by in his uniform, people would grow sick. He, weigh, he may wear a skull cap, a yamuk, a kippah, but he was hardly an orthodox man. He wore the uniform of a Roman. He was a Jew wearing a Roman uniform. With the Roman insignia, the golden eagle, a symbol given to honor the false god of Jupiter, the Aquala. That's what he wore. Rome had its boot on the corporate throat of all Jews. Rome was the occupier. Rome was the oppressor. Levi was their tool. He was a Jew that collected taxes for Rome, lining his own pockets rather substantially. Nobody wanted anything to do with Levi. And then he met Jesus. Let me read about it in the Gospel of Luke, the fifth chapter. I want to read verses 27 to 28. After this, he, Jesus, went out. He saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, "Follow me." And leaving everything, he Levi arose, and he followed him. So when Levi meets Jesus, he takes off the Roman uniform, he takes off the aquila, he takes off the symbol, the symbol given to the God, the false God of Jupiter. He leaves his job. He leaves his lucrative career. He follows Jesus. And Jesus gives him a new name. Levi now calls him Matthew, which means a gift from God. The same Matthew is used by God to pen the first gospel, the gospel of Matthew. The same Matthew who collects the Beatitudes that Jesus utters throughout Galilee and puts them together so that we have the Beatitudes, eight of them, different than Luke's, but we have eight of them together in Matthew 5. And the first Beatitude says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's a recipient of that grace. He's a recipient of that mercy. He comes to God totally poor in spirit. If there is a poster child for someone who cannot come to God, if there is a poster child for someone who does not deserve grace, if there is a poster child for someone who does not deserve mercy, it is this man. He is Aldrich Ames. He is Benedict Arnold. Name your favorite infamous traitor. He is that person in first century Galilee. He's the individual you don't like, you disdain, you hate. He's the one that some curse. And he's the individual who passes Jesus. And Jesus says, follow me. And he takes off the Roman uniform. And Levi becomes Matthew, a gift from God. And he gives us the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's autobiographical for this man. Let me pick up and read the context. I want to read Matthew 5, verses 1 to 3. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed, Makarios, or Makarioi, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is, present tense, the kingdom of heaven. You and I begin reading this word blessed. In fact, it begins all eight of the Beatitudes. Makarios, or Makarioi, blessed. One particular pastor, he's somewhat of a heretical pastor. He preaches a prosperity theology that teaches that when you pray and receive Jesus, you will have all the wealth and health that you possibly need. If you just give a little more to his church, then God will bless you and bless you and bless you. That's the theology he peddles. And this particular pastor wrote a book called, The be happy attitudes, translating makarios or makarioi as happy. The translation's not bad if we lived in the first century. It's terrible in the 21st century. You see, we think of happiness as giddiness, as joy, as a party happening. That's what happiness means to me. That's what happiness probably means to you. But in the first century, happiness is a contentedness. It's a confidence that God is in control, that God has it. And while we are living for God, even if difficult things happen, eternity will correct them. That is what happiness means in the first century. That is what Makarios means it's a confidence that God is in control, that God has it, that all things will work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose, sometimes temporally, always eternally. It is that kind of confidence that these blessed bring to us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice the word Poor. Poor can mean a whole range of things. Next to a billionaire, most of us say we're poor. Next to somebody from Calcutta, we say we're rich. Poor has a wide range of semantic meaning in our language, but not in theirs. They have at least two words. There's penes, that's not the word in the text. Penne's poor is you got something. You go to the cupboard, you open up, you got a can of soup, you got something in it. You're poor, but you're not totally, totally destitute. That's not the word in the text. The word in our text is patakas. It means you got nothing. Your hands are empty, you're bankrupt. There's nothing in the cupboard. There's nothing on the shelf. There's nothing in one's pockets, nothing in one's hands. Unless someone comes and rescues you, there is absolutely no hope. You have nothing to bring to the party. You go to the party empty-handed, and it is only by grace, it is only by mercy that the door is open and you, I, we are invited in. That's the word patakas. That's the word in our text. Blessed are the utter destitute spiritually who place their confidence in God. They shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's what the first beatitude says. If it were penes, that other word, we might be able to go to God and say, you know what, I've attended church a little bit. I go to an okay church, not bad. The guy's a little long-winded, but it's okay. You know, I, I, I try and curb my language, and, and I've been mostly moral and somewhat ethical, and, and we bring some things to the table, and we say, God, I've got a few things that might impress you. I, I realize it's like 85% of your grace and mercy and, and 15% of what I bring. That's the word penes. The Patakus, we got nothing. We're destitute. We're poor. We're bankrupt. There's nothing on the shelf, nothing in the pocket, nothing in the hand. That's the poor we have. Who is blessed? The one who is content in God, who comes to God with nothing in our hands and falls upon the grace and mercy of God. Those are the ones who inherit the kingdom of heaven. Let me illustrate it with the life of Isaiah. I'm going to be in the 8th century, actually about 740 B.C. Isaiah 6, 1-7, very familiar to many of us. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon his throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraph. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe. Woe. It's a word of doom. Woe is me, for I am undone or lost, For I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. I want us to think of Isaiah for a moment. Isaiah is like, One of the big ones on your draft board. I mean, he is a top 10 anywhere in Scripture. In the 8th century BC, he is bigger than Billy Graham in the 21st century or in the 20th. He is much bigger. He's a prophet, he's a man who speaks forth the words of God, he's an author of Holy Scripture. He's a man who's capable of the miraculous. I mean, if Isaiah tweets, he blows up the internet. If Isaiah goes to Washington, D.C., he wants to visit the White House, they invite him into the Oval Office. It doesn't matter Democrat, Republican, Independent. He's invited. If he goes to a hospital, every ward is inviting him onto his floor because when he walks down the halls, people live. You remember Hezekiah, put your face to the wall. Put your papers in order. You are going to die. And Isaiah prays. And he goes back and 15 more years are added to Hezekiah's life. This is Isaiah. He is a top 10 draft choice on anyone's draft board. He's big stuff. But when he comes into the presence of God, he says, whoa. When he is ushered into the throne room of God, he says, whoa. And then when he describes God, I got to tell you, it's a bit disappointing. Inquiring minds want to know, what does God look like? And all he tells us is the hem of of God's garment fills the temple. Are you kidding me? That's all you got, Isaiah? You got to see God, and all you're telling me about is the hem of the rope? You got to do better than that. It reminds me of Exodus 24.10. We got another top 10 draft dude, Moses. He's there with Aaron, and Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders, and they see God. Let me read it to you. It's an incredible passage. It's uh, Exodus uh, chapter 20, um, let me see, verse or 24, verse 10. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. That's it. That's all you got. They saw God, and what did they tell me? They tell me what the asphalt looks like, what the macadam looks like, what the concrete looks like. I mean, I expect a little bit more. It would kind of be like this. Let's suppose you're out on Lake Wausau, you have your your iPhone, and Nessie from Lake Ness pops up and you take a picture. Or maybe it's uh, Bigfoot down in Mosinee, or E.T. lands in Edgar. And you've heard it here, folks, they're all real. So you take a picture of one of them and you get royalties for the rest of your life. But your iPhone doesn't work and your accountant is angry and and your publicist can't believe it. That's like seeing God and then telling us what the hem of the garment is like or what the pavement under God is like. But you can't describe God. You can't use words that we're not capable of to describe what you have seen. How do you describe what is not creature but creator? How do you describe the indescribable with finite words? You can't do it. So Isaiah sees God and talks about the hem. And Moses and Aaron and Abihu, they see God and they talk about the pavement. And Isaiah begins to look at his own heart in the midst of this. And he says, woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is a word of doom. This is a top 10 guy in all of scripture. We can't compare to Isaiah. And yet when he sees God, and he sees God in just a small smidgen of his glory, and then he begins to compare God to himself, he says, woe is me, for I am undone. He doesn't go to God with show and tell. He doesn't say, God, Do you remember when I spoke to the nations on your behalf? God, do you remember when I sat down and wrote 66 chapters of Scripture? God, do you remember when I was used by you to do the miraculous? God, do you remember when I walked around naked? Chapter 20, for three years as a sign of judgment? I did that for you, God. He doesn't play show and tell with God. When he understands just a smidgen of who God is, he says, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. I have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Even God understands that there's no hope. There's no hope for Isaiah. And so God does something that is so painful he sends the seraphim over to the altar, and with tongs he removes a hot piece, and he cauterizes the sin in Isaiah's life. It takes an outside force of God to cleanse even Isaiah, the top ten, because blessed are the poor in spirit. Even Isaiah comes to God with nothing in his hands, nothing in his pockets, nothing on his shelf, there isn't any, anything that Isaiah can impress a holy God with. And if Isaiah can't do it, there's no hope for you and for me. Betty Ann and I have been married for a little over 30 years. I remember when we first got married, we disagreed on maybe one thing. We disagreed on about how much water it took in terms of rain before I would turn the windshield wipers on. I, for one, can handle a spotted windshield a little bit more than she can. And so we would be driving along in a hurricane, and she would say, have you noticed it's raining? I'd say, yes, honey, I've noticed. She'd wait quite a while, and then very sweetly she'd say, "Um, your windshield wipers are not on. And I'd say, "Yes, honey, I I really don't need them. I can see perfectly." And she'd wait a little while, and there'd be buckets and buckets of water pouring down. And then she'd say, very sweetly, "Well, you know, I can't see at all," which really didn't seem relevant to me since I was driving. (laughs) So I would mention the fact that I was driving and I could see perfectly. Now, thirty years have passed, and I don't see quite as well as I used to, and I'm a little wiser than I was, and. And now I turn the windshield wipers on rather rapidly. That's what happens in our Christian walk. When we first come to Christ, we don't even notice all the drops of rain on the windshield of our heart. We just notice a few external things. Maybe we make a vow and say, Lord, uh, I'm gonna try and minimize those four-letter words to like 10 or less a day. And we feel really good about it if we get within a dozen, a baker's dozen. And, you know, we have another thing or two that we work on, just externals. But as God begins to work in our heart and we begin to be transformed by the renewing of our mind through the power of God's spirit, we recognize that the externals are just symptoms of a heart. Because what comes out of the heart is what we hear and what we see. And so then we begin to work on the heart and we begin to be transformed from the inside out. And as we're transformed from the inside out, some of that external behavior begins to be changed. And the longer you and I walk with the Lord, the more we realize how spotted that windshield is. Rather than saying to ourselves, man, we've made incredible progress. The longer we walk with the Lord, we say, man... There's so much more progress still to be made. And that's Isaiah. Isaiah, a top 10 draft choice, suddenly realizes in the presence of God how much work still needs to be done. Blessed are the poor, Pitakas poor in spirit, for they shall receive the kingdom. Of heaven. You know, the Bible tells us to be God dependent. It never tells us to be Jeff dependent. Very familiar words in Proverbs three, four, five, and six. It says this trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make our paths straight. We need to come to God, not trusting in ourselves, but trusting in God. Not leaning on our own understanding, but leaning on the understanding of God and asking God to do a redemptive work in us. I think of John chapter 14, a very familiar passage on salvation. And in verse 1, Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. It never says believe in Jeff. Believe in God, believe also in me. And then he goes on in verse 6 to say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I love the way we read it in the Old Testament in Psalm 34, the 18th verse. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Who does God save? The crushed in spirit. He doesn't save the one who comes with a trophy case of things to somehow try to impress a holy God with our unholy living. He saves the ones who are crushed in spirit. And so the text says, blessed are the poor in spirit. They shall receive the kingdom of heaven. I love the way we read it in Romans 10, 9 and 10. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. It doesn't say, if I do, or I bring, or I perform, it says, if I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, then I will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This doesn't mean that our works do not matter to God. After, after we accept Christ as salvation or a savior and we believe in him for salvation, Paul says then work out that salvation with fear and trembling. We then work, we persevere in our faith. We demonstrate fruit. That's an after, not a before salvation. One last thing. I want us to notice the wording of the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is, present tense, Eston, for theirs is the kingdom. Compare that to the next six. The next six are all future, right? They say things like, you shall be comforted, you shall inherit the earth. But in the first one, it's not future, it's present, At the moment in which you and I receive Christ as Savior, we pass from death to life. We pass from an inheritance in hell to an inheritance in heaven. Salvation is ours because God holds on to us and His Spirit works in and through us to perfect us, to persevere us in our faith. Salvation is ours, not because we bring anything to the table. And salvation remains ours, not because we do something to somehow keep it. These are acts of God. And then in response, an act of worship, an act of love is that you and I work out that salvation with fear and trembling. We live for God's glory and God's purposes. The first, the attitude. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the richness of the Beatitudes. I thank you that you would take a man like Levi and make him a Matthew to present a gift from you, the gospel of Matthew, to us. I thank you that we would see someone like Isaiah modeling what it means to be poor in spirit. Someone like Moses, modeling what it means to be poor in spirit. And Father, as we progress in our Christian walk, we ask that out of love we might honor you and your Word, and you might grow us into maturity. And if there's somebody here today that does not know your Son Jesus is Savior. I pray, Father, that they, like all of us, would come to you empty-handed, fall upon your mercy and your grace, accept your Son, Jesus, as Savior, his death and resurrection as the payment of our confessed and the power of your Spirit repented of sin, and might believe and receive salvation. And Father, may we all who have salvation live for your glory. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.